Today's lesson text comes from the Gospel according to Mark, the ninth chapter, verses 30 through 50. And a correction to the bulletin. Now we've been going through the Gospel of Mark line by line, and we are catching up to where I'm going to end it until we get to Easter. As we are getting to where Jesus steps over the border of Galilee into Jerusalem, and Mark's passion begins. So, to catch everyone up, Mark has been showing that the disciples are very much at odds with Jesus on this whole cross business. Peter has said to Jesus, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus said, yes, and the Messiah must be crucified. To which Peter said, Lord, may it not be. And that's where you have the famous, get behind me, Satan. Then Jesus took them up on the mountain of transfiguration. And we looked at Peter's reaction of building tabernacles. Well, Jesus is transfigured. That means the Savior's here. We're going to have a new tabernacle, a new Moses. Here comes the new great time. And then we looked at the casting out of the demon of the boy who was being thrown down and how the disciples couldn't do it. And they asked that question, Lord, why couldn't we cast it out? And it was a show of the difference in dynamics that the disciples who rested on the fact Jesus told them they could do exorcisms and thought that it rested in their power as persons and the power of Jesus to actually cast out the demon through the self-giving of the cross. And today Mark's going to give us a block of teaching that is soaked through with that same contrast between the disciples and Jesus and this whole cross thing. So. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark, the ninth chapter, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise up again. But the disciples did not understand what he was saying, and were afraid to ask him about it. Then they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But the disciples were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, Who was the greatest? Jesus sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all, and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward, will not be able soon afterward to speak evil of him. Whoever is not against us is for us. <coughs> For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose their reward. Now if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life in Maine than to have two hands and go to hell. 
And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worm never dies, the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray through the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts. We bring honor and glory to you. Amen. So we open up with verse 30, in which my work on the Greek translated a little different. Here in my version, it has, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. Mine was, don't tell anybody. And we've been looking at how Jesus uses silence differently in the book of Mark. This seems to be a completely different silence than we've had so far. The main point is, they're passing through Galilee. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark from chapter 8 through 9 is slowly making a beeline down to Jerusalem. He's already preached through the whole area of Galilee, and Mark is giving us this sense that in verse 31, for he was teaching the disciples, this is a creative translation that they, they're using here, but he's giving us the sense that Jesus is on the way to Galilee, he's talking to his disciples, and that's all he's got his mind on here. And so he gets to what's the core important thing, that the Son of Man has to be betrayed into human hands, that they're going to kill him, three days after being killed, he'll rise again. Now, part of us may be thinking, that's pretty darn plain. <laughs> Why then are the disciples unable to understand it in verse 32, where they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him? Well, people who spend way too much time on grammar, you know the kind of folks on the internet who get upset when you use a, don't use an Oxford comma, right? Those folks have done a lot of digging into the Greek, and it turns out the Greek here is covering a Semitic expression that could be crucifixion, or could be exaltation. Jesus is saying he's going to be risen up. That's a little ambiguous. Well, Jesus is going to, he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be risen up. Does that mean he's going to become the big boss? Or does that mean he's going to get crucified? And the disciples have been fighting with Jesus through multiple sermons here about whether the Messiah should even get crucified in the first place. So when they're not understanding, and they're afraid to ask Jesus, they're kind of shutting themselves up and just hoping that, yeah, it's what we want. <laughs> they don't ask Jesus for the clarification. They're pretty sure Jesus said he's going to be the risen up Messiah and everything's going to go the way we want. And if we ask Jesus about his plans, he's going to start changing them. Who that's a servant in and of itself. <laughs> but we also see how this is infecting the disciples as they keep going. So it says they're going through Capernaum, that's getting further south in Jerusalem. They come to the house, and Jesus asks them, so what were you guys arguing about while I was teaching you? And they know better because in verse 34, they were silent. How many of us, if we had to go to those church meetings that I said that all of us love all the time, if we had Jesus pop up and say, so what are you arguing about? 
hear what it was we were arguing about. <laughs> now, these guys are face to face with Christ, so they don't want to say. But Mark gives the story away that they were arguing with one another who was the greatest. So Jesus has said he's been risen up, and Jesus has been in open conflict with the disciples, and he's saying the Messiah must suffer. The cross is the way to save people. It, it's going to look bad, but it leads to the resurrection, but it's not the way the world thinks. And the disciples have just been insisting, no, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to kill all the Romans, he's going to be a really cool dude, and we're all going to get rich and live in a big giant mansion. Jesus is saying, no, give up the world. He tells the rich young ruler, give away your mansion. And the disciples are thinking to follow God, they're going to earn one. And it's just this conflict building here as they're heading towards Jerusalem. And now it's at the point where the disciples are arguing who's going to have the better car. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it the minister that has the Mercedes or is it the minister that has the whatever? <laughs> so Jesus, sensing this situation and knowing this conflict is there, calls a child over to him. And this is very different than what you find in the other Gospels. You normally hear the, let everyone come to me as a child. That's not the usage that Jesus is using here today to get with. So Jesus sits them down, and unfortunately, this is one time I think the, the gender inclusive of my version sometimes loses it. He says, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a boy and put it among them. And he said, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me, not me, but the one who sent me. Think of an errand boy. An errand boy is not socially in their day and age or in our day and age socially very important. But depending on who they're running errands for, they may be insanely important. So what Jesus is telling the disciples is their function in the kingdom of God, their status in the kingdom of God, has nothing to do with who they are as people. It has to do with who's the one who saved them. So Jesus is not here saying, well, yeah, come as a child, be open and innocent. Jesus is saying, if God gives his message to this boy, you better listen to it. <laughs> because it's in my name. It represents me. So the disciples then throw out a bit of a question where John in 38 asks, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. So the disciples, they kind of get it, and they ask, well, what about these people that are on the outside? Well, that kind of proves Jesus' point. Whoever this unnamed exorcist is, he sees Jesus' key mission plan. He sees that Jesus is in a fight with the demonic, and he's using it to deliver people. And it doesn't even matter that we don't have the exorcist name. It's that the exorcist has come in the name of Christ, and that's what is important. It's not that you're Peter, James, or John. It's not that you're Reverend Paul. It's not that you're going to Heavenly Community Church or Providence Baptist or any of the others. It's the name that rests upon you and sends you out into the world. And so Jesus is saying, don't be so concerned, little disciples, about whether you're one of the twelve about whether they're one of the people that I said specifically could cast out demons. You guys failed last time. Last week they couldn't do it. 
this unknown person is out there displaying more faith and doing more than they are. This is an interesting little show. And Jesus even cracks a joke because if he's doing all that, he's not going to be able to talk bad about me later in verse 39. And again, he gives it to whoever gives you a drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. So it's who sent you, it's not who sent. Now just for some fun stuff, this exorcist we know had to be practicing in faith because there's two little vignettes in the Gospel of Matthew where they try to cast out a demon in Jesus' name, it really doesn't work, and they hit the tar beat out of him. And the same thing happens in Acts 19. So Jesus is not saying that anyone that just smacks Jesus on the side of whatever vessel is somehow on his side, but someone who grasps, grasps it in faith. And then we get to the unpleasant part that I'm sure everyone was wiggling at a little bit. Verse 42. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. That sounds pretty bad to us anyways, but in Jesus' day, the Romans had recently done that. Romans were notorious for coming up with creative ways to solve problems that normally were very unpleasant for whoever that problem happened to be. And Jesus is here saying that if it doesn't rest on the disciples and their importance, but it rests on Him, that they are the messengers of Him, and that's why they should be listened to. In the same way, not listening to His messengers or causing them to stumble and fall away from the faith is the same as a direct insult to God. We talk about facing the image of God in man. Here, Christ is saying that those on the mission of Christ, if you cause them to stumble, it would be very terrible for you. And then Mark relates it to what seems to be a block of teaching about just the cost of discipleship. So in 43, we get into the demands. If your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. First off, that's hyperbole. He's not saying actually go and do it. But the second thing is the Palestinian way of thinking did not talk about abstractions. They didn't think that Lust drove me to sin. They didn't think three drove me to steal. They talked about the human as an entire being. And by using what's called synodoche, where you use a part to represent a whole, they would talk about the hand offending. So the hand is the hand that steals. They're not saying the hand made them do it. They're saying the hand is the part of himself that wanted to steal. So Jesus is here saying that that hand, desire, taking, if you sense it going out, cut it off. For it's better to enter life main, that is life with God, than to have two hands and go to hell, away from God. Then, in case anyone was listening to him and thought that he was being a little hellfiery today, Jesus goes and cracks what's a Semitic joke, that if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Now, that, that's an interesting one, because we can get that the hand steals. But the idea of the foot being tricky, you know, have you ever taken a step and you thought you were stepping one place and you kind of fell over because your foot lied to you? Jesus is saying, even, 
even cut that off, but we gotta go one further in Semitic thought, foot is an abstraction for a part of the male anatomy. <laughs> That's why the seraphim cover their feet. That's why in Middle Eastern cultures, showing the ankle is such an issue. So Jesus is here saying, well, if your hand has some lust, but you're tripping over other parts of yourself, you might want to cut that off too. That's pretty rough. Then he goes to the eye, which for the Greek was not a passive organ. We think of our eyes receiving light. We see all these scientific things about how light reflects and comes into our eye. For the ancient, the eye was something that reached out and searched. Your eye would kind of pour over the nooks and crannies looking for things and bring it back to you. So Jesus is saying, even at the level of dreams, of searching, and desires, of going out and seeking, keep it focused on the kingdom. Because he sums it up in verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now salt is a cultic image in Judaism. It's used to purify the sacrifices. And again, the whole argument Jesus is having with the disciples is they don't think disciples or Messiah should be sacrifices. And Jesus thinks, yes, they should. And even more on the behalf of others. And so to be a sacrifice for others, you must be salted. The refusal of that is that you are going to be salted in the other sense. So Jesus is here kind of saying, the trial by fire is coming one way or the other. The, the judgment that rests on a man that he's been preaching through all the gospel of Mark, that the kingdom has come, believe and repent, is going to be poured out on everyone. And the question is going to be, will they live in the way that fills the hand, that lets the foot go where it wanders, it lets the eye hungrily search out whatever they want, and lead to being the fire of destruction away from God, or will they sacrifice those desires and those things to this messianic program to be They're going to reach the same fire but that fire will no longer be one of destruction, but of sanctification and sacrifice for the sake of others. We always tend to miss in Jesus, there's a little bit of the, well, I don't want to get masculine Christianity like the YMCA, but there is a little bit of machismo. There's a little bit of we who are about to die salute you in this. There was a reason Christians could stand in front of beasts and lions and everything else and not give. There was a sense we're dead men walking anyways. How do we spend it? If we've got a limited number of days, what's the way we're going to do it? Are we going to just blow it on gambling, on drinking, on satisfying ourselves, or are we going to spend it on something that truly, really matters? And Jesus is here standing, looking towards Jerusalem, saying, we are called to something that matters, and it's going to cost us. So if your hand starts pulling you in these other directions, cut it off. And then Jesus just kind of points it out in verse 50. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? So dead sea salt that they use in Israel is able to lose its taste. It becomes gross, mushy, and it's good for nothing, and you just want to toss it out. Jesus is saying that, I don't want to secularize it, but the life worth living has some flavor to it. <laughs> If you find your discipleship and religion, you believe.
weaving and this Jesus and the gospel becoming something that's bland, that doesn't have these edges on it, that doesn't have you saying, yeah, I'm going to actually have to, you know, I like you, right? And I like you, lefty, but maybe we can't get along. If your religion loses that edge, it becomes bland. If we're no longer challenged by what we read in the Word, if we no longer find the messages of salvation through faith alone challenging to the fact that we always want to justify ourselves, if we don't see Jesus the if we don't see Jesus as the Messiah who has his back to the disciples, looking forward and saying, We're going this way, if we don't sense that there's a little bit of catching up to Christ, we lose the saltiness. And then Jesus says exactly how the disciples have lost it on this occasion. They were fighting over who was going to be the better disciple. So Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That's a radical one. You would not believe it. I think it is fine to talk about the great and noble sacrifices and everything else. But the application on this one is easy. Try just living at peace with yourselves. At peace with those in your own household or those within your intimate circle of people who you've actually selected by your own volition to be friends. Think of the levels of conflict and difficulty that we inject in just those situations where we're among friends sitting at the Thanksgiving table and how radical a change and how salty and Christ-following you would have to be to just end the conflict in that one little situation. And then, Jesus is calling them, having figured that out, to apply it to a world 